Let me invite you now to stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and I'm going to read to you verses 17 through 25. And today, I want to change your view of the future. I want to tell you that the dominant view of Christian eschatology, which is everything that has to do with the end times, leads Christians to a negative view of the future, leads them to despairing, leads to depression. So yes, I'm telling you that the most prominent teachers around regarding the last things and how the end will come about are wrong. They are wrong, and it misleads Christians. And I don't think if you read the Scripture as an ancient uh, person, read Revelation, you would arrive at the same conclusions that these teachers arrive at. Absolutely, I think they're in error. So I would drop the microphone, but these microphones are expensive. But I'm telling you, you heard it here. And I'm going to, yet all of us have been heavily influenced by this view, whether we realize it or not, so I aim to change that. I aim to prove to you that together we have glorious reasons to rejoice, and we have a glorious future that I hope will help restore your joy, restore your joy and your hope. So I'll prove it to you. Isaiah 65, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. And be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them before they call I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this text, we realize there are so many preconceived notions about the future, and we confess to you that we are being discipled by these erroneous views, and we're being discipled by the media and what is out there in our culture, and we're paying more attention 
to those things than to your word. So we pray you would change that. We pray you would humble us and lead us in your truth by your Spirit's power, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So right out of seminary, I went to a smaller church in south-central Nebraska and served there as an associate pastor. And one of the things that the church did from time to time, they would have these hymn sings. And so you would come together on a Sunday night and people, there'd be a pianist there and people would just kind of call out what hymn they wanted to sing. And maybe you've been part of that previously. And there was this gentleman, and actually he visited Trinity not uh, long ago, and he would always request, it was his hymn, he would always request the hymn, Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Now, you might not be familiar with that hymn. It's a good Baptist hymn. And yes, we sung it in a Presbyterian church. But the point of that hymn, you don't have to be familiar with it. The point of that hymn is very clear from the title, Victory in Jesus. That if we have Jesus, then we are victorious. That it doesn't matter. What happens to us in this life, those are just details. We have victory in Jesus if he has atoned for our sins and we stand forgiven. Jesus wins, absolutely. He has already won in defeating sin and death in this hymn. Celebrates that, by the way, the author wrote it after suffering from a debilitating stroke. And I need that him. I need victory in Jesus, and you probably do too. Why is that? I'm a negative person. I am a negative person. It's true confession time. And you know, you know, honestly, you probably are too. We tend to be negative people who can tell you everything that is wrong or will go wrong, and there is something dramatically wrong with us. We are impaired, as it were, because we tend to notice that which is wrong more than we notice that which is right. We tend to criticize and judge as an instinct rather than call out in praise and rejoicing to God. Am I stepping on your toes gently, I hope, this morning. And really that tendency we have to talk about the negative or what could go wrong is actually a result of the fall. It's proof that we are fallen individuals falling from that perfect estate that God created us in. And I want to tell you And this is kind of the point this morning. The negative view of the future is actually a subtle denial of the power of the resurrection and the power of the gospel at work in our lives. Did you catch that? The negative Christian, negativity in the Christian life is a subtle denial of the power of Jesus Christ. It's a subtle denial of that hymn. Victory in Jesus. Either Jesus is victorious or he's not. And if I am 
have this tendency to focus on the negative. If I am a negative person, it is a subtle denial of the power of the gospel to save and transform lives. My question is, does the magnitude of what God has done right overwhelm everything that is wrong in this world? Our tendency towards negativity, as I've said, it's evidence of the fall. And I'm not advocating, ooh, no, I'm not advocating a cheap optimism or some kind of positivity. What I am advocating this morning from Isaiah 65 is a favorable view of the future grounded in the reality of what God is doing, what he has done in Christ, and how he owns the future. All of it leads to us upping our rejoicing level. You see, you can up your rejoicing level if you believe the future is good. If you really believe that future is good, then we will rejoice. And the scriptural truth causes us to rejoice. Up our rejoicing level. Well, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. How do you do that? How do I change from being such a negative person? Preaching to myself this morning, and maybe to a few of you. First, it's the good future, the good future that we have. Look in verse 17. So we're in Isaiah 65, verse 17. How do we know there's this good future? Right here in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Notice the singularity of his power to create. I create, he says. We don't help him. He does it all together as the sovereign God, guiding history towards its providential end. And notice here, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth are so good that the former things are wiped out. Verse 18, this is the cause for us to be glad and rejoice forever. But be glad and rejoice forever. This is where upping your rejoicing level, level comes from. To be glad and rejoice forever, that's a command. Notice that there. And notice how we together as God's people fail in that. Be glad and rejoice forever do you know what's going on in the world? Be glad and rejoice forever. In what? Verse 18, in that which I create. The fact that God is remaking, reversing the effects of the fall, reversing the curse, remaking all the created order. Does your belief in that overwhelm everything bad in this world? Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And now you know John's reference. We read it earlier in our worship service. John's reference there. Uh, in Revelation 21 about every tear being wiped away. He's being influenced by this wonderful, positive, optimistic, grounded in the truth view of the future. No more weeping. And the cry of distress 
Think about it for a moment. This is screaming, essentially, screaming in terror, and it won't happen anymore. And of course, this is relevant because Israel was facing exile, and there would be in warfare these screams of terror. But God is saying here that we have a future where this will not happen anymore. It will not happen anymore. The goodness of the future overwhelms the negative of our present time. And this is why we have hope. This is why we can be glad and rejoice forever. I'm not much of a cook, I'll confess that, and some time ago I discovered the wonder of crockpots, the wonder, even the magic and the mystery of crockpots, and how you can work all day, and you come home to this pleasant smell in your house, and dinner's already ready, it's already ready, and then I discovered, I mean, that's good, I discovered these liners that you put in the crock, you don't even have to clean the crock pot. I know, it's wonderful. And so I had this recipe I was going to try on the family. Uh-oh. And it was, it, it was called hobo stew. I didn't make up, I know that's probably, in, you know, politically incorrect. Well, it's not my first time. And hobo stew is, is the name of the recipe. And it's, it's cubed southern potatoes cut green beans, little Smokies, and if, if you don't know what little Smokies are, I guess you're blessed, and, and cream of mushroom soup. I think that, that was part of the problem, cream of mushroom soup. And you were supposed to use this powdered ranch dressing. Do you know what I'm talking about? But, you know, I just, oh, I'll just put salt and pepper on it. So I make the hobo stew. I make it, and... Um, yeah, I actually fed it to my family. I did. It was the, this is saying a lot for me. It was the worst thing I'd ever eaten. Oh, I ate it. It was, it was so bad. I mean, it is, it is memorable to my family how bad that was. And I tell you, I mean, that's a little bit of a comic story there regarding just our memory of something bad happening. And the reality is for all of us, some of us have very serious and substantive memories of something happening to us that is bad. There is grief, there are all kinds of problems, suffering, and if you get in similar circumstances to that one painful situation then we can even have a physical response to that situation. I mean, things are sometimes traumatic for us. And you can kind of think of it this way, you know, and maybe this is why no one sits up front at church, but, but I do have some support here, is, you know, you go to SeaWorld, and that's probably been canceled too, but they have this area kind of up front, and they call what do they call it? They call it the splash zone, right? Because the big whale, you know, and the splash. And, you know, if it's, if it's really hot outside, people like to sit in that area. But, you know, in November or December, they don't want to sit and have that cold water get on them. 
And the reality is we, we always live in the splash zone of sin. Either it could be our own sin, could be our own stupidity and the consequences that flow from that, or it could be someone else's sin and it splashes up on us in all this unpleasantness, suffering, and even trauma in the good news of the gospel. And the good news about our future is the future will be so good it will overwhelm that which is bad that has happened to us. Go back to verse 17. The former things, like hobo stew, shall not be remembered or even come into mind. You see, sometimes I think as Christians, we sell the future short. You know, heaven is going to be... uh, naked babies that are kind of chubby flying around with harps. Well, f- for us, that just doesn't equate with the former things not being remembered. You see, the new heavens and the new earth are so good that they push out these negative and traumatic memories. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Some people envision heaven as just Oh, it's, it, it's eternal golf, you know. And, and I think it's great if you enjoy golf, although, you know, for some of us, that's the other place. <laughs> eternal golf would be the other place. And so this new heavens and new earth has a component to it that is beyond even our finite imagination in how good it is, but I can tell you this, the future is so good if you belong to Christ. It's so good that the former things, the pain, the suffering is not going to be remembered or even come into mind. And that reality of the future impacts our present now. It impacts our present now. So we have a good future. You want to up your rejoicing level? then you let what will happen in the future impact your present. And the second thing is we have the good life. So I'm giving you four reasons to up your rejoicing level. The second is the good life. And here's how the good life is imagined. Verse 20, No more shall there be in it an infant who dies but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. In other words, there will be no untimely death. Untimely death is so painful, isn't it? And the reality is we have a future where this isn't going to happen. And notice the second half of verse 20, a young man shall die a hundred years old. Now you have to remember, I mean, this is the ancient world. So infant mortality rates high. And you know, it was about 70 years ago, average lifespan was like 50 years old in America. And so dying 100 years old is a very long time. But notice here, the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. There's an aspect of justice here. You can't just live out your days. Justice will be done. So two qualities of the good life here that we see in verse 20 is people living out their days, not having sudden untimely deaths. And then you have this aspect of justice that is brought in at the end of verse 20, right, ruling, and being done in God's future kingdom. And then in verse 21, you have a reversal here. 
You have a reversal of the exile. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And the idea there in verses 21 and 22, it's a reversal of the exile because what happens in exile, a foreign army comes in and takes over that which you worked hard to build. And so safety, security, all of this God will bring in the future. Verse 22, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, think about a tree. They're long days, rooted, stable. Think for a moment, really, no one likes moving, do they? No one likes moving. You got to put your hands on all your stuff and pack it away. And of course, moving is, in some sense, it's part of the fall. That was the first move. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. They moved. And what we're told here is there will be safety, security in the kingdom. And not only that, there will be fulfilling work. This is all part of the good life. Fulfilling work. My chosen, this is at the end of verse 22, My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain. Work will absolutely be part of heaven, but it will be fulfilling work. You have to remember the sequence of events. God placed Adam in the garden to do what? Genesis 2.15, work it and keep it. To work and to keep it, the garden That was Adam's charge, and this was before Adam and Eve sinned. And so, future, in the future, we will have work. We will have work in heaven, but it will be fulfilling and rewarding kind of work. Maybe we saw a picture of that yesterday at the work day, doing work, getting the result, being involved in it together, very fulfilling work. So, What you have here is different aspects of life that were affected by the fall, namely untimely death, exile, and vain work. Think the thorns and the thistles it shall bring forth. The the work is not cursed in and of itself, but this vain effort that we put forward in work where it doesn't yield the results, that's the part of the curse that we are talking about. And we can up our level of rejoicing. We can be glad and rejoice forever. Why? The tragedies we endure in this life, the inconveniences of work, the vanity of work, the dread of burnout, the futility, all of that will be done away with in heaven. All of it done away with. You know, nothing like a good day's work. And that is something that we will be involved in. And so you see the good life pictured here. The good life is pictured here. Now there is, of course, competing ideas about what the good life looks like. And in Bernie, Texas, we can kind of think the good life is health, wealth, and time to enjoy them. That's sort of the good life. And you notice there it does have some features of what's being talked about here, but we need to understand that in this life, 
We may need to sacrifice health, wealth, and time to enjoy them to our Lord for His glory. In other words, if the sacrifice of my or yours, health, wealth, and time to enjoy them, if that means God's glory, it's worth sacrificing those things. So my encouragement to you is don't hang on to those things with a death grip because it will lead to death. Instead, hold them with open hands as the Lord blesses us and be willing to offer those things to Him for His glory and you will up your level of rejoicing. So we're talking about back to verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever. How can we do that? Well, we are going to have a biblical view of the future. And the future involves this good future, the new heavens and the new earth, the good life, but as well the good family. Your family and my family, for good or bad, is usually the greatest influence on our life next to the Holy Spirit. And what you have here, look in verse 23, second half of verse 23, we read, or bear children for calamity. So they shall not bear children for calamity. What is happening here? This would be as if giving birth right into the exile, right before the warfare breaks out. Notice like in the Ukraine right now, you have birth rates plummeting. People don't want to have children because they're having children into a war, into a calamity. And we're told here that the future that we have with Christ doesn't involve that. Verse 23, for they, shall bear, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. Now, notice what's happening here. The blessed of the Lord, they're going to be the offspring and their descendants with them. That's at the end of verse 23. So this is all a change that has happened, that has come over Israel. God is saying that his relationship with them will be restored. How does this happen? Well, if we go back to uh, chapter 59, verse 1, Behold, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the opposite of the verse Verse 24 that we're about to read, how does this happen? It happens through Christ. Only through Christ is this separation dealt with. The separation of sin is dealt with through Christ, our relationship restored. Therefore, our children are not born into calamity. They are born into life, life that God gives them and blessing. The restoration of God's people is envisioned here through Christ. And God will be responsive to them. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's quite a distance from how we began. Quite a spiritual distance from how we began Isaiah. If you go back all the way to Isaiah chapter 1, what's the spiritual condition of the people Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
For the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. We go from that to before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What a position God's people have in Christ where our relationship is restored and He is responsive to us. What more do you want? What more do you want? Why would we have a depressing view of the future if the God of this universe, before we call out to Him, He answers? And while we are yet speaking, He will hear. This is the relationship that we have with God. We have no cause to be depressed about the future. Now, if you look in verse 23, they shall not bear children for calamity. I want to tell you that sometimes, especially this is true if you're out of the valley of the shadow of parenting, we may have a tendency to look at young parents who are having children, and, and what do we say? We say, ooh. I'm glad I'm not having, I'm glad I'm not raising kids right now. Right? I'm telling you, that is a denial of the power of the resurrection. You are sinning when you say, I'm glad I'm not raising kids right now. Why is that? Why would I say that? I would say that because, first off, you're super being discouraging. You are being discouraging for a younger generation. In a younger generation, we're told right here, they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So we're denying scriptural truth in saying, glad I'm not raising kids right now. And we're also denying the power of the resurrection because our little children... Our little children, if they're raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we are sending them out in the world like lions. Critical theory is no match for a child grounded in the gospel. All this weird uh, self-actualization, all this weird stuff going on in our society regarding homosexuality, regarding confusion about gender, no match for the blessed of the Lord. And so my encouragement to you is, is when you see young parents, that you actually encourage them and you actually understand that this little defenseless one, no weapon formed against them will overcome them. This little one. Sure, in this life you will have tribulation, but what does Jesus say? Take heart, I have overcome the world. Either you believe that or you deny it by the way you live and the words that you say. So my encouragement, the all-knowing, all-wise God guides and directs, and you can trust Him with your children. You can trust Him with your children. And the last thing here, why we would rejoice even today. Did I even read the news today? Oh, I rejoice 
with joy in who God is, even in the face of the disappointing and discouraging things happening in our world. Why? Because we have peace. Look in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. This is where the future is headed. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Don't you love how that's interjected in there, that the devil's going to get his? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is authoritative here, says the Lord. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We've heard that before. The mountain is really emblematic of the kingdom of God. And those who are within that realm through belief in Jesus Christ are not going to be hurt, are not going to be destroyed. And we saw it previously in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. We read the exact thing. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. God is able to create this kind of peace that transcends all understanding and to give us that peace. And so my question for you as we wrap up, are you more focused on what is wrong in the world or are you more focused on the rightness of the cross and what God is doing? Catch yourself in your negativity. Catch yourself in your hopelessness and focus on what encourages and inspires you to believe in the power of the gospel to change people and to change everything that is wrong in this world. Sometimes when you see something dramatically bad happen, we can marvel at how God will fix that which is broken. We can marvel. We can say, God, how are you going to fix this terrible, broken situation. And then we can give him the praise for how he snatches the victory from the jaws of defeat, how he is beating back the effects of the fall and the effects of the exile there in the context, and how we together can give him endless praise and rejoicing because of the good future we have, the good life He calls us to, the good family He gives us, and the good peace we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we ask that indeed You would help us to have Your view of the future. That You would wake us up from our own sin and the sin of negativity, the sin of not believing that our children will overcome the world, of not believing that truth that no weapon forged against us will triumph. We do nothing less than this morning than ask that you would enable us to believe that which you've written, to have hope, to have healing joy, and how you will right everything wrong in this world and all the painful things that have happened to us. Give us hope in that and lead us to rejoice in every way we pray. In Christ's name, amen.